This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Max Jeffrey on his first impressions visiting Israel, Kate Andrews on her difficult relationship with Newcastle Football Club, and finally, Maggie Ferguson's review of the new book, Blacksmith, Apprentice to Master, Tools and Traditions of an Ancient Craft. First up, Max Jeffrey. From an Israeli army base on the border with Lebanon, I can see the village of Maroon al-Ras. An Iranian flag flies from the dome of the mosque. Nearby, strapped to a post, is a 20-foot cutout of the late Iranian general Qasem Soleimani, which was put there earlier this year by Hezbollah after he was killed by an American airstrike in 2020. His right arm and index finger are stretched out, pointing menacingly over the valley at Israel. Hezbollah, backed by Tehran, control Maroon al-Ras, and I can hear the buzz of a drone watching them. Some Israeli officials say Iran could have enough enriched uranium for a nuclear bomb in just a few weeks. I'm here with BICOM, the Britain-Israel Communications and Research Centre. In Tel Aviv, our small group of journalists meet Isawi Frej, the second Muslim minister in Israel's history, who is tasked with improving relations with the country's Arab neighbours. If war does come, Israel wants them on its side. An ebullient head of security escorts us to the minister, telling us in a thick Russian accent about his posting at Israel's Kensington embassy. I met the very nice man, David Cameron, he says. In his office, Fred says two or three more Arab states will follow the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain and Morocco in re-establishing diplomatic ties with Israel by next year. Saudi Arabia is a priority, but the king, like many other Muslims, won't forgive Israel for taking what he sees as Palestinian land. In Ramallah, in the West Bank, it's easy to forget the 70-year conflict. The roads are flanked by nail salons, billboards advertising chicken burgers and a Mercedes-Benz garage. But the situation is especially precarious today. Mahmoud Abbas has clung to the presidency here for 16 years, and the Palestinian Authority, who run the West Bank, cancelled elections again in April. The latest poll says nearly 80% of people want Abbas gone. Hamas would be the favourites to take over. In a rundown tower block in the city, we meet Ahmed Majdalani, a Palestinian minister, who tells us not to trust the polls. They're used to sway public opinion rather than to measure it. Abbas isn't going anywhere, he says, and when Israel lets Palestinians in the contested East Jerusalem vote or campaign, Israel hasn't yet said that they will, the government will hold elections and the president will be resoundingly returned to office. We know our people, the minister says. We know their psychology. I ask what he thinks about Sally Rooney's recent Israel boycott. Very supportive, says Mashdalani. This is a traditional Irish position, he adds, chuckling, as the lift doors close between us. That evening... At a restaurant on Mount Scopus, overlooking Jerusalem, Hebrew University's Mika Goodman explains his plan to shrink the conflict with the Palestinians. After half a century of trying, we are out of the peace business, he says. Forget fixing the problem for good, just make the status quo more bearable. Goodman is in constant contact with Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. He yanks our Bicom guy's notebook and pen from him and scrolls circles and lines to represent Palestinian villages and motorways. Give the Palestinians control over some new roads, he says give them access to an airport in Jordan, and more land, things that don't jeopardise Israel's security. The UAE and Saudi Arabia could even pay for the roads, and tie it in with the Abraham Accords. Tell me if I've lost you, he says, and gives a long laugh, eyeing each of us in turn. No, we say, 
go on. Maybe it's the view, or his intensity in animation, but at the time I'm convinced by the idea. Later, I wish I'd asked whether he wants to keep the Palestinians walled in the West Bank forever. And what about Gaza? Maybe Goodman is right, though. For now, the status quo is probably the only option. Israel's eight-party coalition of pro-settlers, left-wingers and Islamists close to the Muslim Brotherhood has a majority of one, and Benjamin Netanyahu, now leader of the opposition, is doing his best to bring them down. In private, Bibi apparently jokes that the only thing keeping the government together is him. A British official says there are two rules in Israeli politics. Don't bet against Bibi and don't work with him. In the garden of the British ambassador's residence in Tel Aviv, cats stalk through the flower beds. The house is right next to a feral colony and I'm told it's our fault. Britain brought cats over in the 1930s to sort out a rat problem and now there's thought to be around 2 million of them. There's never an easy fix in Israel. That was Max Jeffrey. Next we have Kate Andrews. My conflicted loyalty to Newcastle United. The second thing I learned about football after moving to London is that you can never, ever switch your allegiance. That was unfortunate because the first thing I discovered was that I liked Newcastle United and had already chosen them as my team. It's been fairly relentless pain ever since. In 2016, I watched Newcastle get relegated. They bounced back to the Premier League the next season, but it's been utter mediocrity ever since. I followed them from stadium to stadium, unwavering in my support, cheering on often extremely boring and disappointing football. I like the idea of loyalty in sports. To ditch a team because they depress you would show weakness of character. It doesn't matter how awful Newcastle are, I thought, nothing could put me off. Then blood money funneled into the team a few weeks ago, and I'll admit the burden of fanship feels unbearably heavy. It's a bad sign for undying loyalty when you find yourself rooting for the other side, in my case Crystal Palace last weekend. Not the team, but the fans, who were holding up a massive banner depicting our new owners, the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund, as an Arab oligarch holding a bloody sword next to a list of human rights abuses committed by the Saudi regime, including beheadings, censorship, and persecution. All legitimate accusations. The PIF, which has put up 80% of the funding to buy the team, is the Kingdom Sovereign Wealth Fund. Prince Mohammed bin Salman al-Sud, whom Boris Johnson told us to cheer on because he allowed women to drive, sits on the board. If you can't separate Huawei from the Chinese Communist Party, and you can't, then there's no fudging the ugly truth that brutal dictators now preside over St. James's Park. The Palace fans' banner hit the sweet spot of politics, humor, and a huge platform, so naturally the Met Police felt compelled to investigate it. To the so-called progressive mind, to which the police show such deference these days, allegations of offensive material and racist abuse, no matter how unfounded, trump the countless crimes of the Saudi state. After two days, an excellent use of police resources, the investigation was dropped. But the gritty reality has stuck with me. And for football fans all over the country, the ethical quandaries aren't going away. How long can we all turn a blind eye to the realities of England's beautiful game? For all the schadenfreude being directed at Newcastle, it's not as if other clubs can talk. Arsenal fans must know that their team distanced itself from Mesut Ozil in 2019, when he directed attention to the atrocities committed against China's weaker population. Taking to Chinese social media, the club insisted it stuck by its principle of not involving itself in politics. The politics, in this case, being genocide. This was a business decision, simple and clear. The Chinese market is worth hundreds of pounds to the league. One midfielder's moral compass can't be allowed to outdo that. 
When it comes to China, we see the same in other sports. The National Basketball Association in the United States, acutely aware that 10% of its revenues come from China, declared that it was regrettable that the Houston Rockets general manager had tweeted his support for pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. David Beckham is under fire this week for accepting the 150 million pound position of ambassador to the 2022 Qatar World Cup. He has been assured by Qatari leaders that rainbow flags will be allowed to fly in the stadium, which he feels will help advance a progressive message in a country set in its backwards ways. Not everyone is convinced. Accusations of sport washing are flying around. And that's exactly what it is. Money from a corrupt and morally bankrupt regime is being used to give its human rights abuse a world-famous footballer to hide behind. It's grotesque, but the whole World Cup spectacle gives the Qatari dictatorship cover. In reality, Beckham is no more of an ambassador than our beloved England squad will be. The boys will no doubt kneel before the start of every game to say that Black Lives Matter, and quite right, too. But will they make a peep about the fact that the stadiums that they're playing in are effectively burial sites for migrant workers who died building them? We will all be ambassadors for that. With every 2022 World Cup t-shirt we buy, every seat bought in the stands and private boxes, every hashtag Qatar 2022 tweet. Perhaps it's my bitterness over Newcastle's sudden ill-gotten gains that makes me want to bring everybody down to our level. But aren't we already navigating some strange moral waters? The UK's arms sales to Saudi Arabia remain almost completely unquestioned, yet the sale of Newcastle United sparks major news outrage. Under David Cameron, the British government was allegedly assisting Saudi in targeting attacks on Yemen, yet Meghan Markle's decision to wear earrings given to her by MBS is what sparks fury in the papers. The earrings were ugly, no doubt, a telling insight into the wannabe people's princess. But surely the fact that Saudi has accounted for 40% of the UK's arm exports over the past decade should give us more pause. The soft power stuff, elaborate gifts, club purchases, probably shouldn't be as troubling. Or, perhaps, I'm just trying to square these brutal facts with my ongoing club loyalty. We're all guilty. Will I cheer when a spectacularly funded Newcastle side, brimming with world-class talent, starts to score more goals? I'm afraid to say I probably will but my hypocrisy will stop it from feeling as good as it should. I chose Newcastle because an old colleague, now a good friend, supported them and explained the game to me, an American in England. I was so grateful for her kindness and thought if this is Newcastle, that's for me. And it still is, but my affection for the game is fading fast. That was Kate Andrews. And finally, Maggie Ferguson. At Intelligent Life, The Economist magazine where I worked for some years, It was easy to feel intellectually challenged. Even the interns all seemed to have Oxbridge firsts. What a breath of fresh air then, when the deputy editor's son decided he didn't want to go to university and would instead apprentice as a blacksmith. During the Industrial Revolution, Alex Pohl tells us in this eccentric and enchanting book, there were 25,000 smiths working in the UK. Now there are fewer than 2,000. As Ronald Blythe noted more than 50 years ago in Aikenfield, far more villages have a cottage called the Old Forge than a blacksmith. But numbers are creeping up, and the clerk at the Worshipful Company of Blacksmiths reckons that today there are around 500 young people, women as well as men, in training. Pohl believes that modern technology bolsters tradition. Blacksmiths use social media to promote their crafts and sell their products 
while at the same time the hurtle of modern life encourages a return to slower, older ways. Could it be, he asks, that we are enjoying the best of both worlds now? Certainly, his forge on the Somerset-Dorset border is ringing with industry. This handsome olive-green cloth-bound volume, a sort of blacksmith's commonplace book, is lavishly illustrated with drawings and photographs. The smith's hammer, Pohl writes, is essentially an extension of his arms and his thoughts, and his own tools laid out for the camera look as if they might have belonged to Wayland, the Anglo-Saxon master smith and lord of the elves. A stunning Farron ball-type chart shows how steel in a forge progresses from dark red, 600 degrees, through shades of cherry and orange, to white, 1,200 degrees. And between illustrations, Pohl writes of his craft in prose that is conversational and compelling, drawing on a marvellous lexicon, bloomer, clinker, scarfing, swages, woots. There are wonderful surprises. I knew nothing of the nail industry, which at its peak in the 17th century employed 50,000 workers in the black country alone, some as young as seven, most working in two-room cottages, one room to sleep in, one housing a tiny forge. Their lives were monotonous, filthy and demoralising, but the nails they made were so valuable that houses and barns were often deliberately burned down so that nails could be recovered and sold. Pohl writes with the passion of Lars Meiting, the surprise best-selling author of Norwegian Wood, the scientific precision of Heston Blumenthal and the devotion of James Rebanks to old ways and law. But whereas Rebanks tells us about his childhood, his adored grandfather, his tricky relationship with his father, Pohl's life remains shadowy. We learn the odd thing, that his anvil served as an altar when he married, that his bathwater turns black, that he cannot afford the knives he makes, but otherwise he is lost in the smoke, clangour and sweat of his forge. I had rather hoped he might turn out to be a 21st century Felix Randall, fettling for the great grey drayhorse his bright and battering sandal. But Randall was a farrier and Pole is a blacksmith, and apparently these days the two are distinct. Nevertheless, it felt a disappointment that the first item Pohl describes making is a bottle opener, and that most of his work is now fuelled by gas rather than coal. He urges one to read more widely, recommending several books on anvils alone. I'm not sure I'll do that. But as I turned the last page, I couldn't resist emailing my old colleague to see how her son was doing. Nine years on, she replied, he's working at a forge outside Hereford and loving it. It's a craft, she writes, an art even, worth celebrating. That was Maggie Ferguson. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on our Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week. <laughs>